Welcome to Breaking Ice and Building Bridges from Possibilities. I'm Kelly Johnson. And I'm Byron Jackson. Glad you're here. Connecting a community through conversation. Good morning, Oklahoma City. This is Jazmataz with Breaking Ice, Building Bridges with Possibilities. I know y'all are normally used to Byron being here and being your lovely host. However, I am filling in today and I've got three lovely guests. I've got a Miss Deborah, Miss Mary, and Mr. Greg. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. And how are y'all doing? How is the start of our week going? I'm going to start with Miss Deborah on my left over uh, here. How about it being a terrific, uh, fabulous Monday? Okay, we're just looking forward to doing this and excited about the day. And it's been a great weekend. So excited about the day. Good. Glad to hear. How about you, Miss Mary? How's well, your week going? Usually a Monday is good if your weekend was a bucket filling weekend, not a bucket draining weekend. And sometimes that happens, you know, family or situations come up and your weekend was, you know, draining. And so mon- that makes Mondays really particularly hard. For me, I did some things that really was a refreshing weekend. So I think my Monday's starting off better than average. Fantastic. How about you, Greg? Well, I got to take my wife out to breakfast this morning, which we don't normally do, especially on a weekday. So the flexible schedule made it an excellent way to start the week. Now, breakfast is my favorite food. You have to tell me where y'all went. We went to Joey's Cafe in Edmond. Joey's Cafe in Edmond. It's a new one. That's one of the ones we'd wanted to try. Okay. I love breakfast, too. It's my favorite meal, too. I had a brunch over on Saturday morning, so it was... Uh, in Norman, and there's lots of places to eat brunch, but the ones that people don't necessarily know a lot about is Blue. It's on Crawford. It um, It's off to the side, and they have a breakfast board, and it has avocado, boiled eggs, cheese, fruit, um, English muffins, bacon, and strawberry jam, and it's just wonderful. Like, you can share it back and forth and wow very communal I yeah love that. it was really fun it was we had a good time so do you like breakfast well I was just sitting there thinking <laughs> breakfast is my favorite meal mainly because I am a morning person so I love getting up early in the mornings and do my devotional and that's just my quiet time with God and then later on, be able to eat a nice breakfast and drink some coffee that smells so good. It's something about the mornings when I think about my mother and the way I got up in the mornings. She was the type person. She was so positive in the morning. So it made my mornings feel I was ready for the morning. And she would always say, Debbie, rise and shine. <laughs> And that, well, maybe as a kid, that wasn't so exciting because I wasn't ready to rise and shine. But when I think about it now, it it is a beautiful, the way that, beautiful way that she woke me up and she would have bacon cooking and I would smell breakfast and I look forward to it. So breakfast is one of my, not only a favorite meal to eat, my favorite meal to cook. So we've kind of formed a Possibilities uh, Breakfast Club. Sounds good. Just all of a sudden. 
Sunny side, watch out. We're going to come mobbing in the morning. Talking about people's network in the evening. No, we're going to come rampage on a Saturday morning one day. We're just going to come up. I love that. I, I really love breakfast, not just because it's the best meal, in my opinion, not because it's the most scrumptious, but it's really a part of our daily ritual. It's yeah. a part of that, what gets us up, motivated and going in the morning. And everyone's got something unique, whether it's, you know, mom shouting rise and shine, taking our loved ones out to a nice new diner. For me, it was always hearing that tink, tink, tink of a spoon on someone's coffee mug, usually my mother. And that got me right up. That was the first thing that woke me up. It wasn't the smell of bacon. It wasn't the alarm clock. It was hearing her stir that that cream and sugar in the coffee. Love it. Love it. Both my parents worked enough in the evening that we didn't always have dinner together. And I'm older than all of y'all, I think. And so my mother working was already getting her in trouble. So what we would, the only meal we were guaranteed to have every day was breakfast. So it became important that way. And we set up a rule, don't try how it evolved, but she decided that we, if we could have breakfast together, that was good enough. And that meant that I had to be cheerful at breakfast every day. If I was cheerful at breakfast, that meant that I was getting enough sleep. So I learned in high school to get by on four hours sleep, hit the floor, and be cheerful in 15 minutes. And it came in very handy throughout college and everything else because I, I could take early classes. I even taught some early classes mm -hmm. that I couldn't have done if my mother hadn't trained me well. I hear that. I hear that. I remember four-hour sleep evenings and getting up and ready and running to ACM in the morning in Bricktown. And, and my uncle was one of the teachers, so I had to be real alert and real chipper. Or I wasn't going to get a good grade, and he was going to tell my dad about it. <laughs> oh, I love that. While we're on the topic of communion and and gathering, so far we've talked about um, being together with individuals that we know and love. I want to hear a little bit about an experience where you have come to join a group with people that you don't know. And I'm going to switch it up this time. I know I started from my left. Let's start with the right. Greg, when's the time that you were put in a room full of people that you didn't know? And how'd you handle it? It happens often, more often, I think, than for most. One of my hobbies is public speaking. And I went through training so that I could become what the Presbyterian Church called a commissioned ruling elder. And that means that I can serve communion in presbytery churches in the area. So I have set myself up for what they call pulpit supply. A lot of the churches don't have full-time pastors, or maybe even a pastor goes on vacation for some reason. I don't know why a pastor would on vacation. <laughs> so my role is I will, I, my name is on a list, and churches call me and say, will you come speak this week? Hopefully they'll give me a little more notice than that. And I walk in, I don't know how many people see. I don't, I can ask and everything, but it's totally out of left field. I I've done it as far west as Hobart, and I've been to Chickasha a lot. And I go to, I've been to Paul's Valley, just all over the state within, I try to keep within a couple hours. But it's a, it's a way to, help the church and to bring some happiness to people. 
Wow, that's incredible. That that takes a lot of heart. Would would you say that Toastmasters has been a big help in making that process easy for you? I, could, I don't know if I could have done it without it. It helps me focus the, what I'm going to speak. It's striking, too, because most Toastmaster speeches are five to seven minutes. I would be very popular in a lot of churches if I did a five-minute sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so when, they, when I went through training, they said they usually don't yell at you if it's too short. But five to seven minutes still seems a little poor, a little weak <laughs> for what they want. But so I, I've learned how to do better with vocal variety and imagery and all the public speaking things that a minister has to have. And I have to be able to give an entertaining one because I'm not trained as a theologian. I know I read about what's the the scripture is going to be for that week and have to come up with enough to give at least an interesting sermon out of it. That's incredible. I, I, I love hearing positive Toastmaster stories. I always hear, well, I was very nervous and it has shown and given light to my stage fright, but that's a beautiful thing. And I love that you're bringing communities together with your gift. And that, that makes this ironic for the question because I actually joined Toastmasters not because I was afraid of public speaking. I, that didn't bother me. I'm a, I have a social anxiety to a point where I don't like talking to people I don't know. And Toastmasters has given me a chance to get over that a little bit. I'm still learning at it, but that's something that everyone could benefit from, and especially me, because I would go to a conference or something like that. I'm still the one standing over in the corner eating my eating my dinner and <laughs> walking away, but... I at least say hello to people. Fantastic. I love to hear it. What about you, Mary? Well, it, you know, being a, I don't know if we're supposed to disclose what we do in our life on this podcast or not, but. At your comfortability. Okay. Okay. Well, I uh, am an elected uh, state um, senator from Norman. And so in my district, one thing that happens is you tend to know a lot of people in a lot of rooms that you walk into or people that are there because you have some kind of long continuity of relationships. And then rooms at the Capitol, I end up, you know, even at receptions and things, you know, there'll be lots of people that I know because I've just been serving with them at the Capitol. So I had to stretch my mind to think of a time and what over spring break, I went to Boulder to watch my um, daughter's um, significant other um perform in a trumpet competition and it was it was a national trumpet competition so it had trumpeters from all over the United States and a lot of them were staying at the hotel that we were at so I was in this community of very well uh, playing they were very talented trumpeters and it was really interesting to see the culture that formed around that and the way that people interacted with each other. So when we get on the elevator, then my conversations came around, what pieces are you playing? What part are you? Because they had from high school all the way up through graduate students, and they were from all over. And you could tell from T-shirts what part of the, and also drum and bugle corps. I don't know if a lot of people don't know about DCI, but uh, it's this whole other culture of like almost professional marching uh, folks that uh, compete and so you could tell from their T-shirts what part of the read, if you were familiar with that. So um, that's kind of what I, I just try to pick up on what the culture is and then try to ask curious questions about 
where they're from and what pieces they're playing. And I find a lot of comfort in that because I feel like the demands of me personally are very, very low. Um, because in places where people know me, you know, you, I feel like I have to perform, you know, or meet their expectation. But when you're a fan of trumpeting and you're just there to cheer someone on, that's an easy role that, um, that I can fall into line with. And, and one time I was at a, another place, it was in, I think it was in Tulsa and they were having a choir competition going on on that day. And uh, a choir was in the hotel with us. And one of them were on, was on the elevator and I got to say, do you like your pieces? Cause that's a big thing in choir. Cause sometimes you sing stuff you don't really like. And I knew that from my own daughter. She goes, yeah, I really liked it. And I said, what piece are you, you know, most excited about? So she was able to tell me about. So I see it's a challenge to try to figure out, like, how does this culture work? And how do these people interact with each other? And, you know, how do they greet each other? And how do they deal with disappointment? And how do they deal with competition? And, you know, so if that's the most recent time that uh, I can think of that I was in a group of people that I didn't know. Well, that's fantastic. I, I always love a good music competition. I haven't been in one, and I'm going to say about hmm, 15 years, so takes me back. Yeah, Love it, love it. Ms. Deborah. So as I was listening to the other two, it helped me. I'm glad to know that I'm the third one. That gives me ideas, and now I know who Greg is. I know where I met you in Toastmasters. And that's interesting because I'm at, in a club that's called Let's Talk Toastmasters. And when I, I joined in April of last year, not so much to get over my fear of public speaking because I, I have spoke quite a few times, especially in my church, but I did it because I wanted to become more effective when I say something I won't, I believe that we have a message mm -hmm. and that message has to be, mm -hmm. it has to be uh, come across effectively so that it moves people, mm -hmm. whatever that message may be. So I thought about in Toastmasters when I joined in April of last year, I came before a group of people that I had never met before, didn't know what Toastmasters was all about. And I was there, see, April, May, June, and they asked me if I would be their president. I wanted to follow backwards. I thought, president, you don't become president of something unless you've been there a while. And you know something about it. But Toastmasters doesn't always work that way. They will put you out there and, and, and get you going. And one thing that my group said, we're behind you. We will help you. And they have done that. And so I have become more comfortable with it now, being around everyone. I think that takes a while, you know, a little bit of being around other people for a while, and now I'm comfortable with it. But I would have to say also, I'm retired, and I was a librarian, and I had children come into the library every day, all day long, and I had classes. So I don't mean just them coming and check out right, books. Right. I had classes. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know those kids, 
And every class had its own culture. And you had to get used to, real fast, get used to that culture. So I would say that, yes, sometimes I would have five and six classes a day. And I didn't know what they were going to be like when they walked through that door. That was, could make you a little uncomfortable. At first, it's not like your regular classroom teacher who's with them all day long, all year long. That classroom teacher gets to know her class from the beginning, and she sees them, she or he, is with them all day long, knows them. But when you're the librarian and our PE or art, any of those type classes, we don't know those kids like that. So when they walk into us, we've got to get to know them quickly and be able to be effective in the way we communicate with them. And I would say that that's probably been one of my most challenging tasks, even more so than Toastmasters. But <laughs> so that, that's that been like a couple of my experiences. I hear that. I, I recently started working at camps that uh, are for preteens and for me, it's it's a batch of new faces every spring and every summer. I'm lucky and get a few returning ones, but I go in there and I'm like, whole new crowd, whole new expectations, whole new adventures. I love that. It has been incredible talking with the three of you because you are all trained professional speakers at your own capacity and at your own strengths. That has led me to our theme for today, which is communication. So I have one more question for everybody today. A lot of times when we are speaking to individuals or groups, the words that we choose, the language that we choose in that communication is not always the most important centerpiece of that message. Oftentimes what we see is how we are saying those things why we are saying those things and the tension, excuse me, the intention behind why we are bringing that conversation up. I would like to hear from each of you a time when you have said or not said something and the impact it had, not based on the words, but why and how you chose to deliver that message. We're going to start with Mary this time. Oh, goodness. Well, even though I have a lot of opportunity to speak, right now being in the extreme minority party in Oklahoma, it doesn't seem like it has the impacts that I want. So I think I I kind of fall over into the duty to speak, uh, the responsibility to say something, Um even when you know that it's not going to have the impact that you would desire, uh, even though you know that it will probably even make you feel even more unheard because you don't get the result that you want. But sometimes I find myself acting on that duty to speak for the people I represent in hopes that people 20, 25 years, 30 years from now will hear it. And I'm really particularly interested in looking at speakers from 30 years ago, speakers from 60 years ago, even 100 years ago, that were telling us something now 
that we're just now understanding and we're just now accepting. And so I think the duty to speak sometimes kicks in when you know you're going to be ignored, you're going to be um, made fun of, you might even be punished or targeted for saying what you have to say. And it sounds like we've got a lot of um, religious people on our panel too. And so I've been reading Jeremiah and I didn't really know much about him, but that dude only had two people listen to him. He was thrown in a clay pit, it left to die. And finally this king gets him out of the pit and he goes to the king's like, I want you to tell me what's going to happen. He was a prophet. And he goes, well, I'll tell you, but I can't handle this anymore. You've been hurt. You know, I've been picked on. I've been, he goes, no, really, I want you to tell me. He goes, okay. And so we told him, you know, how to get out of a mess that his country was in. And the guy ended up listening to him. But what I got out of that was that duty to say what you're supposed to say and show up with your voice. And you can do it in a kind and polite and affirming way. But it can also set a really, like when you set boundaries with people, sometimes your message is a boundary setting message that people in power don't necessarily particularly like. But just because they don't like it or you know that it's not a positive message that they necessarily want to hear and it's not validating their uh, community bias, there is a duty to say it anyway. And so I take a lot of um, inspiration from those that, we're, we're responsible with that duty. And, and even though you feel like you would try to protect yourself emotionally and socially from the negative cons- consequences from that, the responsibility, I'm also an attorney, you can't say, well, this will make me look bad, it will make me lose friends, and it will make my feelings hurt, so I'm not going to say it. Lawyers have to, that duty to say something is more than your own social acceptance, your own emotional acceptance, and your own, you know, way you want to comfort. And um, I think in Oklahoma that that's kind of the lane that I end up having to step into is is to show up with that responsibility and to say things and try to frame it in a way that's the most palatable possible. But honestly, sometimes I just don't give a... I won't say it, but... I just don't, I give up and I'm like, I know y'all aren't going to hear, you're not going to want to hear what I have to say anyway. So I'm just going to come straight in at you like a, you know, right between the eyes. And I think knowing the times when you come at real strong because the polite doesn't work and sometimes polite doesn't work for people. And sometimes you have to kind of get more brass tacks to the road. And when that happens, I use more country language. I use more um street language sometimes when it's look polite and sophisticated and professional didn't work for you you're not getting the message so i'm gonna have to come at you with like some elementary school like under reading level language so i try to not use fancy words when i'm trying to really if i'm gonna if my language is gonna be harsher the message is harsher i try to simplify the words that i i use at the same time but I'm not that, I don't feel that successful at it though, but that's just what I'm doing. Well, as a young constituent of Oklahoma, I can say for certain the hardest conversations that we have are the ones that 
people don't want to have or are scared to have. And I can say without a doubt, there have been many times in my young political growing career that there were a lot of instances where I wished that someone in my immediate leadership, my ward, my um, zone would have spoken up about something and they chose not to because the conversation was difficult. So I want to say thank you as a young Oklahoman for taking the time to bring up those difficult conversations because that's how progress happens. That's part of what we're trying to do here at Possibilities as well is to open up a safe dialogue for those difficult conversations. Well, so. one thing, real I know you need to move on to the other speakers, but the way I summarize that at, that I've learned at the Capitol is the hardest thing to do is to tell your friends no. To send a friend a met to your friends, to your allies, messages that they don't want to hear. That's the hardest thing to do. It's easy to tell the people you don't really get along with or are not in your silo a difficult message. The hardest ones are the people that you want to stay in community with and you want to you you fear losing belonging if you tell them something that you know that they don't want to hear. And that's scary. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Ms. Deborah. Since I've retired, my call, I believe, has been to write. That has always been something I love to do. Writing is communication that I love. I've done it since I was a child, since I knew how to write. My mother used to say, quit writing all that, quit writing what you feel because People will know all about you from what you write because I always wrote journals and I had, but it was something inside of me that I couldn't help. It had to come out on paper and it wasn't that I just wanted to do it. It was, I had to do it. It was a passion. Now that I am retired, my call has been to write devotionals. When I got ready to write the devotionals, one of the worst things, uh, I guess you say a characteristic in me, is comparison. Comparison is not good. Um, when you think that somebody else can do it better than you or that my writing wasn't going to be as great as somebody else's or other people were more educated or more experienced or used bigger words than me. So that was a problem for me at first. I know I love to write. I love to write scripture. I love to make it plain. I want people to hear the message and it makes sense to them. Take a hard message and make it plain. That is my call. So I had to pray about that. And one of the things I told God was, or asked God rather, was, first of all, aren't I too old for this? I'm in my 60s, for goodness sake. And my answer for that was, that's a good age because you've been through a lot of experiences. Once again, I'm comparing myself. My next comparison was, but I write so simple. And should I, other people use bigger words and their language is so strong and different than mine. I, I write very plain and simple. And my answer was, that's what I want. I need somebody 
to write the way you write. You be you. Do it your way. You're not that other person. They are called to do it their way. I call them to do it the way they do it. You use your gift that I've given you to do it the way I've told you to do it. I've given you to, the gift to do. So with those two answers, I started writing. And I really believe for a while I thought, is this going to be, am I going to hear from some of the great theologians and they look at what I wrote and go, really? Is it going to be theologically sound? I know I study. I, I went to school. I went to uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. I graduated from there. I got my degree in it. So I know, I know the word. And I know, I know how to interpret the word and get help with interpretation. But still, that comparison thing, it was just a big problem for me. But I've gone on with it. And what has happened is that I have started publishing my devotionals in a newspaper, in a community newspaper. I run into those people (laughs) at my church. And churches and different different uh, get-togethers, and I get the feedback. Wow, you're doing a great job! Wow, we're enjoying what you're. I love your writing. I used I didn't get that paper before, but now I get it just because of you. That was the confirmation that I needed. I hate that I had to have confirmation, but God knows me. <laughs> he made me. And he knows how I do with that comparison thing. It's still always a big thing. Am I good as this person? Am I, can I do it as well as the next person? And when when I've run into people and they have confirmed that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and it is who I am and that's who God called me to be and do it my way, do it his way, the way that he has given me. And I'm fine with that now. So that has been a big thing in my life. But right now I am excited every morning. I love to, that's another thing about morning. I love to get up in the mornings and get my cup of coffee and begin my study. And it has just been my life. I had one person in Toastmasters, she said, you're just blowing retirement out of the water. And and I said, that's the reason, because now I'm doing what I believe that I'm called to do without my comparison issue. Just do what I'm supposed to do and do it to the best of my ability. That is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. And I love that you brought up writing in particular because that's a topic we usually don't think about when we are talking about a delivery of message or having speech. When you put something on paper for individuals to read, it truly does change the dynamic of that thought or idea. And speaking on the comparison part, I wanted to share something that this conversation had reminded me of. Now, growing up, I had a lot of self-doubt, fear, shame, you name it. And I would 
go to my aunt. I would usually text her or I'd be on a phone call and I would tell her all of these thoughts that I had about not being good enough. And she would tell me, well, you're saying these things to me, but would you go and say that out loud to a stranger or would you write that for the world to see? And she said, if you truly feel that way about yourself, why don't you try jotting it down and see if you still believe that message? if it still has the same impact as what you're telling me on the phone. So I started trying that. And then I stopped believing all those horrible things I was saying about myself because I gave that that idea and message a different medium to examine it. Mm-hmm. And it, it completely changed how I thought about those things. So um, I just share that because when I hear about the way that you share the gospel through writing, it gives it more impact. It solidifies your belief and it strengthens your ability to stop believing the internal lies that we give to ourselves. So I just want to say what a creative spin on the method of communication that you have, and you must tell us what newspaper to get so that we can read your writing. Which one is it? Yes, it is the Oklahoma City Herald, Okay, and it comes out every Friday. And just once a week, so I only have to put in my devotionals once a week. Angela Munson, I believe, is the editor. Um, used to be one of the senators. <laughs> <laughs> she used to be my rep and my senator. Well, when she it was uh, Vicki Miles Lagrange was my uh, senator, and then Angela Munson was my rep, and then she moved up into because I used to live over by Bishop McGinnis when my husband was at medical school. So anyway, they were my first role models for elected officials and how they treated me is how I try to treat people that come up to the Capitol. So that's And neat. I've heard many, many wonderful things about Angela Munson. But when I began writing, I thought, where do I need to put this so the public can read it? Where, besides just in my closet, <laughs> in my room, and one of the ideas came to me was to put it in the newspaper, in the Herald, because a lot of people, it's a community paper. It tells us you know, all the things that's going on, especially in the African-American community. And so I called the lady who does the printing, and she said, well, I will give this to Angela to see what she thinks about it. Well, you know, that made me feel awfully good when Angela Munson said, yes, I want that in the paper. So that was another confirmation for me to know that I am, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Just like you said about, you know, that comparison thing. It's really a big thing with people and sometimes more so with some of us. And that's just something we have to get beyond. And a lot of times we need a lot of confirmation. And God is good. He always gives me that confirmation I need. Well, you have a beautiful gift, and we are honored and privileged you. for you to share that with us. Greg. Talk about com- comparison. I'm in front of three highly talented women. You talk about somebody who feels really small. Jeez. <laughs> My mother was an attorney, so I understand what you what you went through as a attorney. In fact, she met my father when they were in law school at OU. So it's 
a woman lawyer has even more fun than a, than a man lawyer sometimes, having watched them practice law together. As you were told, as these stories were being told, the thing that first leapt to mind is the story of the emperor's new clothes, because that seems to be a lot of my life. As I said, I'm a scientist, and you think with, in science, there's a right answer. Not like law, not like theology, not like making making law, because you can actually, two plus two better darn equal four every time. And it makes it more, di it's made it more difficult in my career, though, because sometimes you have to tell people they counted wrong. <laughs> and you can go a long time with the wrong, working off the wrong information. And that's not something that I've ever been very careful, comfortable with. I'm much happier everyone knowing everything. And if there's a problem, we fix it. We don't let the kick the can down the line till someone else has to fix it. And it's, I've lost jobs over that. And it's, and I've, I've tried to do what I thought was right. And I'm not very good at keeping my mouth shut, unfortunately. So that's, that's what I've run into. A great example, one company I worked for, they were doing testing for a startup drug company. And I joined the, when I joined my company, they put me on this project and told me, go finish the testing for this, the startup. Okay. Looked at the results. It wasn't working. They'd all been they'd all convinced each other for a year that the data was valid and it wasn't. So I got the joy of first telling my boss that it didn't work, and then next I had to figure out a way to prove that it wasn't working because it's not an opinion unless you can prove it. So I I proved it to him. He said, "Okay." I said, do, "What do we do? Do we tell the client it's no good?" Do we tell them, just let it go because no, it, it seems to be working? And I finally ended up having to tell the client, and he was not happy. And it was something I could tell. The only way I could even walk out of the room was the fact that I'd had the, I had the testing to show what, to prove that it wasn't working and to have a plan for how to fix it. And it, it took several months to do it. It took about the time I promised him it would, and we solved all the problems. We got the test working correctly, and the, the startup was able to use the information, and they sold themselves for almost a billion dollars, $700 million for that, one, for that one drug company. So I was happy for them that they got, they were successful, and I was able to look in the mirror every day. I don't know how people can live without it. I'm, I, I don't know that I could be a legislator, especially a minority one, because I would feel that I had to tell, make sure people knew the truth. And sometimes legislators are happier just letting it slide, it seems like. Well, and I think you, you described for me one of the most loving things that we can do for a person is to tell them that it's not working. Because because you said that to them, they were able to get it to working. Mm -hmm. But if we don't say it's not working, then they spend their life and their effort in this place of not actually working. 
And I think figuring out how to say it in a in a kind way, and I think that's where you're getting at, Jazz, with about your intentions. And I think is your intention to condemn and destroy or is your intention to restore and build up? And that my faith is that that restorative justice that we see, I, I see it all through my religion, which is Christianity, and I was a school counselor, is that restorative telling people hard truths so that they can get to a better future as opposed to telling somebody something so you condemn, destroy, and it crumbles. And I think because of the love and the intention that you had, it actually resulted in the success of that company. And I think to see telling people hard truths as a loving act and not a condemning or superior act of superiority is like the difference of, like, are you trying to get somebody in trouble or out of trouble? And that's what I used to tell kids at school is, and so our hard truths can get somebody out of trouble. And that's a loving thing to do. And I've always felt too that living with error is living on borrowed time. Sooner or later, truth wins out in spite of us sometimes. And the longer the tr- the error gets to hold the sway, the harder it is to root it out. And the more problems it causes when you begin turning the other direction. And that's, that's why I do it as much as anything. And I was, when I was listening to you too, I thought, well, that could cause some social anxiety. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> like if your message is, I know you don't want to hear this, but, and if you're the guy, you know, I call it like, you're the, you're the nun at Las Vegas and you're going around messing everybody's fun up. It can cause, you internalize that. It can cause social anxiety. It really can, especially if, a lot of your interactions have been. So it's good you did Toastmasters because it gives you an opportunity to see, oh, not everybody's going to treat my message like I just blew up a whole company for a year's worth of work and now they got to redo it, you know. So I could see that that would, especially in Oklahoma, because science in Oklahoma don't always get along. And Greg, I, I really appreciate you sharing your perspective as a child of the 90s who grew up on Bill Nye and the Magic School Bus and all things PBS, I can say it. It has been very daunting growing up in an age of individuals sometimes believing that things are wrong simply because we don't agree with them. So for you to speak on that and allow people the opportunity to have their beliefs, expectations, and biases biases challenged is a breath of fresh air and gives me a spark of hope again for the great state of Oklahoma. (laughs) Everybody, we are getting near to the end of our episode, and I want to just say it has been an absolute treat being able to have this lovely Monday morning discussion with you all. And for our listeners, I part with you three nuggets of wisdom for um, our lovely guests, and that is to not be afraid to have difficult conversations with the ones we love, for us to find unique and creative ways to spread the message from our heart, and to always allow someone the opportunity to learn something new about themselves or from others. That's been it for today's show. Again, this is Jasmine Taz with Breaking Ice, Building Bridges with Possibilities, and I hope you all have a fantastic start to your week. Bye-bye. Breaking Ice, Building Bridges is the Possibilities Community Podcast Platform. Thanks for tuning in.